0: I, I can see that God has been faithful through the preaching of his word. And I can see there are many men. So it's not only Pastor Joshua. Now there are many. I can see there are many people that God has blessed and has made a blessing. And let me also say that I didn't expect to preach. I, my wife was invited as a speaker. So I just accompanied her, just, you know, just to be with her, to encourage her. And I was looking forward to sit down on the Sunday In our local church, I'm always involved on Sunday morning. So I was just looking for a Sunday where I can sit down and just listen to the Word of God. But I made a mistake of telling Pastor Joshua on Monday. I should not have told him. I told him on Monday that I was going to accompany my wife. So on Wednesday, he sent me a text and said, would you be willing to preach? And I'm not a pastor, so I don't have... You know, pastors always have like three messages in their back pocket when they ask them to preach. But I'm not a pastor, so what I had to do was... I lead a Bible study in Lagos, and we've been going through the book of Titus, so it was easy for me to look at Titus and try to bring something from Titus, and that is why I, we would be sharing today from Titus 2. Uh, we'll read the entire chapter in our hearing, but the text we'll be looking at is actually from verses 11 to 14. So Titus 2, I'll read the entire chapter, we'll pray, then we'll look together into God's Word. But for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sober in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, nor pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. They are praying of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. Let us pray. Like the hymn writer says, our Father in heaven We thank you for safely bringing us through another week. And so, Lord, we come this morning to seek a blessing. For we know this is the day of every day the best. It's an emblem of the eternal rest we would have with you. So, Lord, we pray that you bless your people. Speak through me. Help me, O Lord, to all the things you desire that your people to learn. Help me to remember to say them. Lord, beyond only hearing help your people to be doers of your word to the people that would hear these things, and that you would move their hearts you would move their wheels to go out this week and remember to bring you honor in all they do bless our time together here for in Jesus name we pray amen all right I believe that the message of the book of Titus can be summarized as the return of the king now obviously there are many other ways you can summarize the gospel but I think Titus is a summary of the gospel and the gospel itself can be summarized as the return of the king there are many Summaries. There are many metaphors that the New Testament authors use. So all of them are equally valid. But I think this is a good summary also. When you say the return of something. You imply that whatever is returning. Once used to be somewhere. Left and is coming back. And so when we say the return of the king. We imply that there once was a king who, was, who had come. And the king would come back again. And so we'll be studying the verses I mentioned from Titus 2, 11 to 14. On the three headings. The coming of the king. The return of the king. The people of the king. That is the coming of the king. The return of the king. And the people of the king. And so we look at the coming of the king. What is the gospel? I see that uh, Trinity Baptist Church says they are God-centered. And gospel driven. But what is the gospel? Paul speaking in Athens, and remember that his audience in Athens were people who have never heard about the God of the Bible. They are people who have never heard that there was a Messiah or anybody coming. And so when Paul speaks to them, he has to make it as simple as possible to get across to people who had no background, knowledge of these things. And this is how he defined it he says the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead every part of that statement is important for Paul says there were times of ignorance that means before the coming of the gospel the people of Athens did not know about the true God. They did not know anything about him. And so in order to remedy that, what did God do? God changed the situation. And God has now issued a command. That is authoritative proclamation that all people everywhere must repent. And when God says repentance, what God means is that they must change the way they are living in order to conform to God's righteous requirement. God goes on. And it says all of this requirement has been told to us by a man that God appointed. So God appointed and sent out a man to tell us about his requirement. And beyond that, God proved his authenticity as his messenger by raising him from the dead. So in summary, the gospel is God's sending of Christ into the world to tell us about him. That is to give us information about God but about what God wants from us, that is repentance, and about what God will do to those who believe and those who do not believe, that is judgment. This gospel is the message that all true Christians have preached from the beginning till now. This gospel is the reason why we have missions and missionaries, because this message of what God has done and what God would do is one that God wants the entire world to know. And so men and women have been going out from the beginning telling people about the gospel. And that was the reason why Apostle Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete. So that the Cretans may know about God's plan of salvation and what God required of them. Indeed, Paul had gone to Crete with Titus. If you read, I'll read Titus 1.5. It says, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so Paul had gone with Titus to Crete to evangelize. And we don't know why, but he had to leave before the work was completed. And he had left Titus to complete the work there. And you know how it is. Sometimes you leave someone somewhere and you remember when you get home that, oh, I didn't really explain everything I needed him to do. And so this letter is his explanation of the things that remained that he wanted Titus to do. And that brings us to our passage. These the things Paul wants Titus to do. And the first question that should come to our mind is also Titus will be preaching to people. So why should these people obey what they hear from Titus? Why should you obey whatever I say today? Why should you obey whatever Pastor Joshua says to you? And the answer the Bible gives us is this. Jesus is Lord. Earlier in the morning in the service, we read the Apostles' Creed. And one of the things they spoke about was that they proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Now, all many of us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, you've said that phrase. In fact, sometimes it's used as a refrain. You know, you see people on social media just saying, Jesus is Lord. But what does it mean when the Apostles' Creed say, Jesus is Lord? When Paul and the Apostles write that Jesus is Lord, it simply means in common language that Jesus is our master. Or to speak in Nigerian English, Jesus is our ogre. And you know, all of you have had orgas at some point in your life. Or you may have an ogre now. What does it mean? It means that your will is subject to the will of another person. It means that you do not set the parameter of what you do. But you are dependent on your manager or your boss or your ogre to tell you what to do. And God has made Jesus our master. God has made Jesus our Lord. And so whenever we say Jesus is Lord, we mean he is our master. He is the one that determines how we live. Look at what God said about Christ in Psalm 2 verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy will. And all who would be Christians must acknowledge the rule and the authority of our King, Jesus Christ. Christianity teaches us that we must no longer live the way that we want to live, but we must live the way God has commanded us to live. Now, in every organization where we've been a member of, so whether it's when you're in school or whether it's where you work now, one of the first things they do when you get there is what? They give you the rules and regulations of this organization. And the first thing you must do is you must learn those rules and regulations so you can Obey and be able to fit in into the organization is the same thing with us. This is exactly what Paul is telling Titus. These people have never, the people of Crete have never heard the gospel before. Titus will preach to them. They will be converted. They will come to church. Titus much teach them the rules and regulations of what it means to be a Christian. And that is exactly what Titus too is. Paul is saying to Titus, That whether you're an old man, or whether you're an old woman, whether you're a young man, or whether you're a young woman, whether you're a master, whether you're a servant, there are rules and regulations that God requires of you. And Titus must spend time, and every pastor must spend time taking his people through what God requires of them. If you've ever studied Titus 2 before, you know that Paul is telling Titus to speak to five groups of people I already mentioned them in passing. Older men, older women, young older oh, sorry, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and born seven, and he even had a word of encouragement to Titus himself there. Now, require, regardless of wherever we are in our lives, God has how He wants us to live. If you've ever been in charge, if you're a parent or you have any position of authority in any organization, you know that the instant you create a rule what would happen? People would say, how can we obey this rule? Or why should we obey this rule? Man by his very nature is a rebellious against authority. And man by his very nature is not able, like our brother that was taking us through the Sunday school this morning was pointing out, we are not able of our own to obey many of the things that we know is right. So there's a big difference between the things we know we ought to do and the way we actually live in our lives. And so the question is, God has given us these rules. Titus has commanded these rules. How? How would we be able to live the life that God commands us to live? And that is what Paul would then address in our passage today. So from verse 1 to 10, Paul has said to Titus, this is how God wants people to live. But from verse 11 to 14 that we are going to be looking at for the rest of our time together today, Paul is going to tell Titus how they should live their lives the way God wants them to live and in verse 11 look at the first thing it says it says for the grace of God has appeared when did the grace of God appear for Paul makes a declaration past tense for the grace of God has appeared and so the question that will come is when did the grace of God appear and that is when he says the grace of God appeared is referring to the coming of Christ Paul's point is that when the person we know as Jesus Christ came into the world he came with the graces of God that means when Jesus came into the world he did not only come with telling us rules to be and telling us these are the rules or regulations of God Jesus also came with a grace that helps us to obey the requirement that God gives us. And I want you to note that because that is what makes Christianity unique. Every religion, if you talk to a Muslim, they all have rules and regulations. Talk to a Buddhist, every religion gives you rules and regulations. But no other religion answer how would you obey these rules and regulations that God has given you. If you ask them, they will tell you what? try harder but christianity says to us that jesus christ came not only with the rules that god wants us to obey but also with the grace of god that we need to obey the rules of god and so what is grace what is this grace of god in the year 2020 year 2013 in this city of abuja a lady publicly accused the popular pastor of adultery with her And the next Sunday after the accusation, the pastor stood up on the altar and he said, we would issue a robust response soon. It's almost 10 years and we are still waiting for the robust response from the pastor. But the reason why I bring up that story is the lady spoke about grace in her accusation to the pastor. And look at what she said. I'm quoting a statement then. The lady said, at some point, I got really confused about what Pastor X and I were doing. I had to ask him, How do you handle it? I would never forget what he said to me. He said, and I quote, I will teach you a level of grace that you don't understand. Now, grace, as defined by that pastor, is a reservoir of mercy from God. That means the more of sin that I have, the more of mercy that I can receive from God. That means God's mercy never runs out and God's grace is always available to me. And so there are levels to this grace thing. All I just need to do is ask God and God will cover my sins. Now, I hope you are all biblically literate in this place. Because if you are biblically literate, you already know that this cannot be the definition of grace. For what does Paul say? He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what was his response? God forbid. And so this is not what the Bible defines grace as. So what then is grace? Biblically defined, grace is the summary word for all the graces, all the acts of mercy that God has given us in Christ. That means all the benefits of God that we receive through Christ are collectively defined as the grace of God. So when we talk about being safe from the penalty of sin when we talk about being adopted into the family of God, when we talk about expecting eternal life when the Christ returns, all of these things together are what is the grace of God to us. So how do these benefits that God has given us in Christ, how does he help us to obey the requirements of God? Now, let me give you an example. It's completely hypothetical and I pray to God that it never happens. So, Let's for hypothetical reason imagine that I cheat on my wife and she finds out and she's so angry when she finds out that she runs we live in Lagos and she runs back Her family live just down this road in uh, close to Sunnyville and she runs to go and stay with her parents in Sunnyville and I, I, I don't know what to do so I just fly to Abuja. And I go and meet Pastor Joshua. You know, he's a very nice pastor. And I tell him, Pastor Joshua, this is my problem. I need you to go with me. And he gathers some of them, maybe Elias and some of the men here. And say, so, okay, let's go with him to his father-in-law and go and beg his wife. And so we go there. And we get there. You know, I'm a Yoruba man, so I'm very quick to prostrate. I'm very prostrating. I'm really on the floor. I'm saying, "Please forgive me, the devil." I don't know what happened. You, and all of and on and on and on. And you know, all the other brothers are looking sober. You know how you look when you go and beg. And, you, and all our family members are sitting there, and she's crying. And through her tears, she looks at me and she said, "I would forgive you on one condition, and that condition is this: that you promise me you'll never do this again." And I look up and I reply and I say to her, am I God? How can I promise the future? Only God knows the future. What do you think will happen? Pastor Joshua will give me a holy (laughs) slap. Now, that might sound funny, but I'm asking my wife for grace. I'm asking her to take the pain of my betrayal and instead of inflicting it on me, to bear it alone and to give me a fresh start. And I'm not willing, when I ask for that much of her, to even be willing to do the simplest thing, to make a commitment not to sin. And when you understand that, you understand what the grace of God biblically defined is. The grace of God is understanding the cost of our salvation, understanding what it costs God to give you and all those benefits that come through Christ. It was not cheap. It did not cost him anything. It it cost him a lot. And the minimum we can do is to recognize that grace puts an obligation on us to live a certain way to show that we understand what it cost God. And that is why Paul says in verse 12, he says this, the grace of God is what's training us. That is a present continuous verse. That means the grace of God has started training you the day you became a Christian. The grace of God should be training you today. And all throughout your Christian life, the grace of God is your trainer. Grace is what teaches us to obey God and to live in a certain way. Put it another way, we can say the grace of God is an active gift, not a passive gift. It's a gift God gives you so you can put to use and not keep in your drawer and only pull out when you need it. We are daily under the tutelage of grace. We are learning how to live how God desires that we live. And so Paul then goes on to explain that the grace of God teaches us in two ways. It teaches us negatively and it teaches us positively. Look at what he says. He says, the grace of God, in verse 12, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So negatively, the grace of God is teaching us to do what? To renounce ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness is all the things that make it impossible for us to obey God. And so you take all of those things. And then he says, apart from that, you also renounce worldliness. What is worldliness? Worldliness is all the desires that come from our flesh. And so, all of you have been, you've all seen when people are renounced, maybe usually cultism, they say, okay, these people were or militants, they were ex-militants, they were ex Haram people, whatever they were, they bring them forward and they do what? They renounce it. Now, what does renounce mean? It means you are publicly saying, I used to be this way, but now I'm making a commitment to no longer be that way and to live a certain way. And so, that is the first thing the grace of God should be teaching any of us who have tasted of this grace. We must renounce the way we lived before we came to know about Christ. And we must live a certain way. And so the grace of God also teaches us positively. So what is it teaching us positively? It's telling us three things. To live self-controlled, to live an upright life, and to live a godly life. So what is self-control? And in this church, there's a lot of young people. And young people need a lot of self-control. Self-control, biblically understood, is simply restraining yourself. You are able to restrain yourself. It's not everything you can do that you do. It's not everything you can buy that you buy. It's not everywhere you you can go that you go. You are able to keep yourself under control. That is self-control. So you live a self-controlled life to yourself because you know the grace of God. But towards others, you live a life various translations translate that word differently some say upright some say just some say sincere you live a life that when people can describe you in one word they say this person is a just person this person is a sincere person this person is an upright person that is what the grace of god teaches us to live because we know what god has done for us and then the third thing is The grace of God teaches us to live a godly life. A godly life is towards God. You can come to church and be on your Sunday best, but how do you live during the week? The grace of God is what teaches us that we must live to God, facing God, knowing that God sees us every day of our lives and we should live the way God has asked us to live. So what is the evidence that Christ is your king? Remember again, I said, whether you call him Lord, whether you call him Master, whether you call him Orga, what is the evidence in your life that you are under the authority of Christ? It is that you understand the weight of the grace that God has purchased for you in Christ. It is the fact that while your life is not perfect, anybody who is an onlooker can see that the grace of God is training you. They can see that this person is in school, and is learning from God every day how to live a more righteous life. Are you more self-controlled than you were two years ago? Are you more upright and just than you were when you became a Christian towards those that work with you, whether your maid, your nanny? Can they say something has changed about this person since they preferred to be a Christian? Are you becoming godlier every day? These are the standards you must check to know whether Christ is our king. Let's go to the second point, the return of the king. And so we've looked at verse 11 and 12 where God, Christ was talk, where Paul was talking about the grace of God that appeared. Now we're coming to verse 13 when Paul wants to talk about the return of Christ as king. So Paul had talked about the Christ's first coming, the Christ that come and brought grace with him. Now in verse 13, Paul is looking forward. And look at what he says in verse 13. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great king and savior, Jesus Christ. There was a first coming of Christ into the world. And that is what we call Christmas. That is what we remember at Christmas. That God sent Christ into the world. But Paul is saying there will be a second coming of Christ into the world. And that is what the Christian is waiting for. And this theme of the second coming of Christ is something that is very prominent in the New Testament. All the New Testament writers insist on it. That Christ is coming again. That Christ is coming soon. And for example, I read from Acts 1. Just right after Christ ascended into heaven and the disciples are transfixed and you are just looking up. Look at what the angel said to them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And when you get to the book of Revelations, listen to how the writer describes the coming of Christ. Right from the beginning Revelations 1, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye would see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen the emphasis of the first coming of christ was on the grace of god that came with him the emphasis of the second coming of christ that we are waiting for is on the glory of god that would come through him and that is why paul says in verse 13 he says we are waiting for the appearing Of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is this: the glory of the great God is Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus will say to the disciples when he was alive, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To see God. To see Christ is to see God. To know Christ is to know God. And what Paul is saying is this Christ would appear in glory. Now, the reason why Paul is making this argument is that the religions of his day, the religions of his day, spoke long about their own gods and how their gods will come in glory. And Paul's point is there is no other God we are waiting for. The only one coming in glory is Jesus Christ. When he returns, he is the only great God and savior who would soon appear. In the first coming, men disregarded Christ. Why? For he came meek and lowly. But in the second coming, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And the, and every tongue would confess that Christ is king. Philippians 2. Indeed, in the second coming, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ, and it shall reign forever and ever. Revelations eleven. Why is this important? Why is the teaching of the coming of Christ in glory important? Because of what Paul said at the beginning of verse twelve, or beginning of verse thirteen. Sorry, he says we are what waiting, present continuous verse the Christian is the person who is waiting for the return of king Paul is describing Christians as people who are daily expectant and waiting for our savior to appear that is our blessed hope what is your hope what is that one thing you are looking forward to what is that thing that when you wake up in the morning and you are a bit upset, you remember that ah, it will soon come and then you are able to get up and start your day? What are you looking forward to? Hope is important because if you do not have any hope, you would lose your driving life. And if you do not have, if you become completely hopeless, you would go into depression. Hope is what that promise of a better tomorrow is what allows you and I to get up in the morning and to be able to face all the challenges we will face because we know that it will be better. And what Paul is saying is that we may have our hopes and there's nothing wrong with our hopes. But the greatest hope of a Christian is a Christian is waiting, is waiting, is patiently waiting for the return of his king in glory. So what is hope? Hope is the mixture of expectation and obligation. I would explain. It's the mixture of expectation and obligation. How many of you went to boarding school? All right. So if you went to boarding school like I did, you know that your hope for the entire month was on what day? Visiting day. Yes, that was the hope. And when you woke up on that glorious visiting day morning, you didn't go to the cafeteria to eat. No, 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 no. You didn't eat the garia and the normal thing. No, God forbid that you taste food like that. Your hope is mommy's cooking. And because of that, even if your parents came at 2 p.m., you would wait for that food. In fact, sometimes you'll be promising your friends, I'm saying, you, don't worry. <laughs> I would show you. And because you are waiting for something, you're expecting something, is affecting how you are behaving now while you are looking forward to the future some years ago i went to my friend's house and they were having a party that afternoon and you know how it is when you go to a nigerian house and you're having a party you see the woman cooking and you see the butchers killing the cow and i it was just two men they were killing the cow and they were just ban- bantering and i was just overhearing the banter one of them was saying both of them were saying how much you were going to eat one of them was saying you you think you want to eat me I'm going to eat so much today that before I came this morning, I've already taken flagio to make sure that I'm not taking apple. I would hit now that is a hopeful man. That man is ex- so expectant about what he's going to eat that day that he came prepared, and his hope would be fulfilled because he has already taken the flagio. The point I'm trying to make is this: your expectation drives how you behave. Now, the way you are behaving today. Is based on what you're expecting about the future. If you are waiting for the return of your king, the people around you would know it. There will be something different about you than from everybody around you. Why? Because they have only this present age. They have only today. And the expectation will be fulfilled today. But you know of a future age. You know of a king that is coming back. And you know that this king has asked you to live in a certain way while you wait for him. And because of that, you are able to do things they cannot do. You are able to go places they won't not go because you are waiting for the return of your king. Now the third thing I want to talk about is the people of the king. When many people preach about the gospel, this is what they say. They say something like, Jesus loves you. Why is that important? So, if somebody comes and tells me, Jesus loves me, what is the purpose of Jesus' love for me? What does that mean? Why did Jesus love me? Imagine you go to Jabi Lake. I suppose people go to Jabi Lake, Abby. You? you go to Jabi Lake or somewhere near a, a pool of water, and you're just having a picnic with your friend, and you just see a man comes and meets all of you, and he says to all of you that, I love you. I love you so much. I love you all so much. And as he's just saying that, he's running, 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 just jumps into the lake and drowns. What is the point of his love for you? What is the purpose of his love? Jesus did not go to the cross to teach us an abstract lesson on love. Jesus did not go to the cross to be an example of what love is. Jesus came to die for a reason. Paul explains the reason to us in verse 14. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Paul is saying that the reason Jesus gave himself, for, for, there was a reason that Jesus gave himself for us. And he says, Jesus gave himself for us. Now, that is ransom language. Unfortunately, in Nigeria, we are familiar with a ransom. A ransom is when you pay money to, relieve, to release a loved one from bondage they are to someone else. But sometimes it's not only money. Sometimes a ransom is a life for a life. For example, the Haram bandits that attacked the Abuja to Kaduna train, they did not do it for money. They did it so a life can be given for a life. They took the lives of those people and kept it under their control. So that the Nigerian government would give them the lives of their colleagues that were in Kuji prison. And so to get the lives of their colleagues, they took the lives of some other people. And that is what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. So that the penalty we should have paid. He bought it. The debt that was our debt. He paid the price for us. And in order that you and I may be released. From the bondage to sin that we are born into. To what end? Why did Jesus go through all of this and die on the cross? For those who have put their faith in him. This is what Paul tells us in verse 14. He did it to purify for himself a people this is old testament language this is exactly what god was saying to moses when he sent him to israel to sorry to egypt look at what god says in Deuteronomy 14 too. he says for you are a people holy to the lord your god and the lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of it god sent moses to egypt to talk to pharaoh and tell him let my people go why he says do you know why he said so he said let my people go that they may what serve me and that is the reason why jesus came so he may purify for himself a people for his own possession and so that those who would put their faith in christ would no longer just go out and live the way they used to live before but because of their faith in christ They have come to an understanding and they have come to live a certain way. Jesus died to redeem for himself a people. Paul says that Jesus came to separate his people from all lawlessness and he came to purify those who would follow him. We are all once lawless, living the way we wanted to live, doing the things we wanted to do. But if we've come to know Jesus, if grace has come to us, grace should teach us that God has called us to be his people and the people of the king live the way the king wants them to live let me start to conclude some of you when you saw the title of this sermon will have realized that the title of one of the book in the lord of the rings series the return of the king and those of you who are in trend with nollywood will have also realized that is the title of a Nollywood series by Kemi Atiba. The first one was called The King of Boys and the, return, the second one was called The Return of the King. What do those two walks have in common? In those two walks, there is a king who has come. But the king's position and authority has been usurped and the king has been driven away from his kingdom. And now there sits the pretender on the throne of the king. And the pretender is asking that everybody in the kingdom will bow to them. That they would be the one that they will follow. They would be the ones that they will worship. And the question is in both walks was this. What would you do? The king has been driven away. Would you keep your allegiance to the king? Or would you worship the wrong king? And this is the same question before you and I today. Do we know the true king? Paul is telling us that we live between the two comings of Christ. Christ has come. And the first time he brought grace so we can obey his commandment. But he's also telling us that Christ would come. And the question is, would we now, while we wait for him, would we live for him? Or would we follow all the other pretenders who are daily asking us to follow them? Are we seeking Christ are we seeking the things of this world and the question has always been the same from the first day to this last day would would we would would who would we serve and just like the book of Joshua you read this morning what did Joshua say to the people of Israel when he was going he says to them choose this day whom you will serve but for me and my house we will serve the Lord the king has come the king would return Let us wait for our King. Amen. Let us pray.